This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. There's a lot to do today, um, in particular, but I want to just begin uh, with a, a you know with the news, right? With what everybody knows is going on, and it, it, it's pretty simple, right? Uh, the, Donald Trump has contracted the coronavirus and a a tight coterie around him. There is, in effect, a super spreader event in the White House. Right now, there are more positive coronavirus cases in the White House than there is in the country of Vietnam. Indeed, on Friday morning, there were only 14 cases of coronavirus in the whole of Washington, D.C., which has now been exceeded by uh, White House staff and officials. And it begins to one degree or another, I think we can see on this day, Saturday, September 26th, 2020, at a Rose Garden event to announce President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. At this event, you will see on the the Rose Garden, no one is wearing masks. Um, There are very few people wearing masks. Here's uh, Senator Tom Tillis, who did indeed contract coronavirus wearing a mask. But there's Senator Mike Lee. He's not wearing a mask. There's um, Melania Trump. She's not wearing a mask. Uh, There's Don himself. He's not wearing a mask. And indeed, this was just the outdoor event. There have now been at least seven, now I think in upwards of nine people who've contracted coronavirus seen in in this photograph, uh, as has been demonstrated effectively by the New York Times and elsewhere. So we can see all the people, including Chris Christie uh, and John Jenkins, who is the president of Notre Dame, um, the uh, home institution of Amy Coney Barrett. Um, But this was not merely an outdoor event. It was also a, a close indoor event in which senators and others were afforded the opportunity to meet the new Supreme Court nominee. In their desire, their rush to get this nomination through the United States Senate, and in their rampant politicization of the coronavirus, the Trump administration has indeed created a super spreader event within the White House itself. Now, we don't fully know that this event was the one that did it, um, for reasons that I'll come to in a moment. But while it may feel rather deeply surprising that this could have struck uh, so deeply at the White House and the President of the United States, the most well-protected man probably in the world, could not protect himself from coronavirus, on the one hand, seems like it might actually be surprising. I mean, it certainly came as a surprise to me. Uh, but of course, I stay up really late, uh, you know, on the, and so when the news came out, um, at 1 a.m. on Friday night, uh, I was awake for that, whereas everybody on the East Coast woke up and Trump had coronavirus. So that was a kind of surprise there. So this is what you get staying up late uh, on West Coast Twitter. But it should be said, right, that while this feels like a surprise, it is in fact both completely predictable and was easily predicted. Like the coronavirus itself, right, everything that we're seeing uh, in 2020 While it may feel surprising in the moment, it should be understood that all of it was widely and carefully predicted by experts years in the future. The fear of a new pandemic striking as civilization encroaches deeper into the wilderness, widely predicted by epidemiologists for the last decade. The fires that are destroying California, the rate of hurricanes in the Pacific, uh, in the Atlantic, all of it predicted by scientists with climate change and the explosion of black anger 
and protested the police at the murder of George Floyd, all of it predicted widely by experts. So 2020 is not so much the year in which we are filled with and struck by surprises, but the year in which long ignored problems have finally become inescapable. The year in which the things that experts have been telling us about, talking to us about, and warning us about have finally become uh, our daily reality, that we can no longer escape these things. And so to a White House that is so openly flouted um, CDC guidelines that is so openly denied and politicized the coronavirus and mask wearing for it to all of a sudden, you know, essentially fail to defy gravity and become dragged down by coronavirus was not only completely predictable, but in fact, widely predicted. But it leaves us with a broad set of substantive questions in particular, right, that of things that we do know and things that we don't know. And this is a timeline that's been established by uh, a number of uh, important journalists to track exactly now because we're, we're doing what has to be done. Uh, which is the most massive and essential work of contact tracing probably anywhere in the world to determine just how many people have been affected at the White House. Uh, Kaylee McEnany now has, was announced as having tested positive this morning, uh, Trump's uh, press secretary. But what you have is that Trump arrived late to the debate in Cleveland after um, in which, uh, and he refused, he arrived late, he refused to wear masks, he refused to reveal the, um, the results of any meaningful tests, and yet, right, uh, was treated to the honor system during the debate in which he may indeed have exposed uh, Joe Biden. Now, Biden has tested negative several times, but there was a clear case that someone in Trump's entourage, Hope's Hick, Hope Hicks in particular, had, was exhibiting symptoms of the coronavirus, but that did not quarantine, continued to travel, and did not notify anyone in the White House or in the Biden administration that they might have been exposed. By Wednesday midday, Trump tests positive and is diagnosed with coronavirus. The Trump, the Biden team was not contacted and no information was shared with the press. This was last Wednesday that Trump indeed tested positive. By Wednesday afternoon, Trump felt apparently good enough that he traveled to Minnesota for not only a big outdoor rally that you see in the photograph here, but with an indoor buffet lunch with 18 multi-million dollar donors to his campaign, knowing that he had tested positive with coronavirus. Hope Hicks, Trump's closest, you know, ad advisor, let's call her, um, uh, begins to feel sick and quarantines while on Air Force One. Now, if you think it's possible to quarantine on an airplane, then... Um, uh, maybe that's possible. I don't know, but that's what the press is reporting. By Thursday, Hope Hicks has tested positive for coronavirus. Trump begins experimental treatment while inside the White House. And yet, despite the fact that he's experiencing symptoms, Donald Trump then travels to his New Jersey golf course, where he held yet another fundraiser, indoor fundraiser with donors, and then followed by a subsequent outdoor rally with a group of supporters. The White House later then it, it cites that he looks tired, but by 1 a.m. on Friday, Trump breaks the, the news breaks that both Hope Hicks and Donald Trump have tested positive. Now, you will recall during the debate that the, the, the Donald Trump openly mocked Joe Biden for wearing a mask, the biggest mask I've ever seen. He wears it all the time. So now I have a mask, but I only wear it when I need it as, because it's his job to decide when he needs it, not um, epidemiologists or public health officials. And what you see here is just a blatant, explicit, open contempt 
by the Trump administration, not just for this, the people who come to his rallies, not just for the workers and security staff at the White House, the, so, the Secret Service, the food service people, the janitorial staff, all of those people at these golf courses, at these wealthy mansions, but his donors, the wealthiest people in the country that he willingly went into a closed environment with knowing that he had the coronavirus. He was willing to do that in the name of maintaining his sense, uh, his image of health and authority. And because the president denied and refused all of the CDC requirements, what you have is a massive, growing, super spreader event inside the White House at an absolutely crucial moment in the campaign. And we still don't know when Donald Trump's last negative test was. When Donald Trump tested negative for the the last time, we still don't know. They will not tell us. Now, of course, that knowledge is known, but they won't tell us. Outside of Walter Reed Hospital, where Donald Trump is receiving the finest possible medical care that the United States is capable of providing, you have these press conferences in which President's uh, physician, um, Dr. Sean uh, uh, Conley, is openly talking to the president during the press conference. And the quote here from Yamish Alcindor, who's a White House correspondent for PBS, Connolly said, quote, I didn't want to give any information that might steer the course of illness in another direction. And in so doing, it came off that we were trying to hide something which wasn't necessarily true. Which means that the doctor is talking to the president through the press and that the doctor admitted to openly lying to the press about the president's health because he was hoping to convince the virus of something, it makes absolutely no sense. We are being lied to comprehensively about the president's health. And indeed, it should be said, and this is Mark Meadows sitting directly off camera. So if you see, here's the, the, the doctor directly staged, you know, left here is Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, who has not been seen in the last several days, um, let's just say, stressed. This fear of the president openly lying about his health is something that should not surprise any of us. You will all recall that the president began by lying on the day of his inauguration about the size of his crowd, in which Sean Spencer insisted, Spicer insisted that Donald Trump's inauguration was the greatest of all time. It had more participants than any other inauguration in history. Start that as lie number one of the Trump presidency. According to the Washington Post, and I'll put this clip this in the chat, Donald Trump's administration has lied more than 20,000 times since he was first inaugurated. This is the lyingest administration in American history without even a close second. Now, what's important about this is that the American people simply do not and cannot trust any medical information that is coming out of the White House right now. You should not trust anything they say uh, until it can be independently verified in a whole host of directions. And there's a reason for this. Lying about a head of state's health is the singular source of most forms of political lying. This is what authoritarian regimes and democracies alike do with the highest rate of regularity, is lie about the chief executive's health. And I give you three quick examples. Woodrow Wilson 
president of the United States during World War I, um, tested uh, in, at the Versailles Peace Treaty in 1919, actually contracted the Spanish flu at a critical moment in the negotiations and disappeared from the negotiations for several days. It was not reported that he had the Spanish flu. Uh, and indeed, um, much of the debates, his presence in the, the, the Versailles Treaty uh, fell apart. His presence uh, sort of declined and the treaty took a very hard right turn without his presence. He later would come home to the United States um, to push the, the, the Versailles Treaty in which, uh, and then in October 1919, Woodrow Wilson had a stroke in Pueblo, Colorado. And the press simply lied to the press about how sick the president was. What you see here is a photograph of his wife, Edith Wilson, helping the president of the United States sign papers. The last 17 months of Woodrow Wilson's presidency, his wife essentially was the chief executive. Well, the, the world, uh, the, he, they lied to the world about how sick Woodrow Wilson was. Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt here um, had uh, polio as a child. Uh, and was disabled. And this is a photograph of him in a wheelchair, which the press uh, persistently concealed, and we were not allowed to see uh, the president's disability. But more than that, in, 19, in March 1944, um, he got a, a, you know, a dangerous assessment from his doctor at Bethesda Naval Hospital, saying that the, the, he had a congestive heart failure directly before the 1944 presidential election. That was covered up by his doctors. He would win in 1944 and then die on April 12, 1945, only a few months later later, after becoming president, I should say. And then, of course, John F. Kennedy uh, had Addison's disease and a very bad back that forced him to sit in a back brace, uh, and hence the famous uh, rocking chair, which helped the president um, sit up straight in the Oval Office. So chief executives lie about their health all the time. This is what chief executives do. This is the major source of their lying, is about their health. So now you have the lyingest president in American history, who now has a critical illness obviously lying about what's going on. And I will end here with his little joyride in uh, a hermetically sealed uh, uh, SUV in which the president, in order to wave to his supporters, recklessly endangered the lives of multiple um, Secret Service agents. And indeed, this is James Phillips. Uh, the quote is that he, this is a, an attending physician at Walter Reed who said, quote, that presidential SUV is not only bulletproof, but hermetically sealed against chemical attack. The risk of COVID-19 transmission inside is as high as it gets outside of medical procedures. The irresponsibility is astounding. My thoughts are with the Secret Service forced to play, are with the Secret Service forced to play. Trump is both lying to us and continuing to recklessly disregard the health and safety of the people around him. So pay careful attention to this space. Um, this story will continue to move rapidly. If he is still in the hospital by the end of the day, which he is lobbying to get out of, then his health is far worse than we probably could have imagined. All right. Um, again, stay tuned, uh, and, um, and I will turn this over to Sarah. I would just add, even if he does go home today, what we know about the virus is that for a lot of people, symptom, and some of you I'm sure maybe have had COVID here, um, but that for a, a large number of people, symptoms become worse at the seven to 10 day mark. And we're not quite there, although we, we've been lied to also about exactly when he started COVID. We're not quite at the seven to 10 day mark. We know Boris Johnson, for example, was hospitalized at the ninth day. Um, so even if he did go home today, I don't think that means everything's done and clear. Um, so... Anyway, hi everybody, good to see you.
Well, good morning to those of you on the West Coast. Um, today, we were going to talk uh, about organizing and social movements. We're entering into a new unit of the class where we want to spend some time thinking about the other ways to engage beyond just voting. Um, and I wanted to spend a minute talking about what, why are we talking about that in the context of an elections class? The class is elections 2020, so why are we thinking about ways to engage civically other than just voting? I mean, an election is about voting. Um, that's the thing though, an election isn't just about voting. An election is about so much more than voting. Um, there's so much politics that goes into an election, so much behind uh, even setting the agenda for an election. And in most other countries, there are you know, lots of ways people engage in elections beyond just telling people to vote, as you've heard me say multiple times in this class. So I'm going to be covering a lot of material as quickly as I can so we get to some discussion. Today, I'm not only covering organizing theory and social movements uh, as fast as I can, but I'm also going through some of the power mapping that will be a part of your final project for this class. So it's important for you to pay attention. It's important for you to make sure you understand the material, which is why even though I'm gonna chalk as fast as I can to get through as much material as I can, I do wanna make sure we pause, take a breath, make sure people understand the material and then hopefully have some time on Wednesday and in, in future classes as well to answer questions because frankly, what I'm gonna cover today, some of you have been in my social movements classes. I see many of my former students here, um, but those of you that haven't been may not know that what I'm gonna cover today is a quick summary of what I cover in 17 weeks of a semester. And so it's a lot of material um, in a short period of time. And so if you don't, feel like you've grasped it. We want to take more time to answer questions and really grapple with the material um, in, on Wednesday and in coming weeks. Um, on Wednesday, uh, we're going to spend a little time answering questions and talking about the final project, but Professor Cohen is largely talking about how uh, the right has used essentially the same kind of social movement theory, especially white supremacists and others on the right. Um, next week, we're hearing from social movement leaders that will hopefully allow us to get into a little bit more depth on these same things I'm covering today. And so basically what I'm setting up today is the theory for the next couple of weeks in terms of what is a social movement, what is organizing, what are the ways people are uh, moving uh, policy, moving public opinion, moving politics in this country other than just voting. Um, so why is that important? So some of you have read Stephen Luke's maybe in other classes, um, in political science classes or sociology classes. And so those of you that have will know about his three dimensions of power. Um, so the three dimensions of power, right, that Stephen Luke's talks about that you can go read his book or you can read a summary of his book. But in a nutshell, what he says, what he put out is the idea that power is not just, there's not just one kind of power. Power is not just the ability to say yes or no on a question. That's the most overt type of power that a person might have. Uh, that's the power to vote on candidate A versus candidate B versus candidate C. That's the power that 
um, an electorate might have if they're voting for a ballot measure. So there are lots of ballot measures. For those of you that are in California, there are lots of ballot measures on the ballot. Really on those ballot questions, it's just a yes or a no. Yes, I'm for Prop 15, or no, I'm not for Prop 15. It's a yes or a no. That's an overt um, kind of idea of power. It is when all of the world is saying, vote, 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 vote. The most important thing you can do right now is vote. They're really just talking about this first dimension of power, the ability to say yes to this candidate versus no to this candidate or vice versa. But that actually is the least powerful version of power. That is the most overt and least powerful version of power, according to Stephen Luke's. There's a deeper level of power, which is to set the agenda in the first place, to put on the table what it is that we are deciding on, to, to create the menu of options that we are saying yes or no to. That's obviously a much greater power because everything that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, particularly the fact that what the center is and what the left and the right is right now is different than what it was in the past. So, um, so that the power to set the agenda, you know, uh, for example, right now there, you know, you might say uh, the, the power to set the agenda is simply, for example, a, a question like, you might in these days get a question like, should we raise the minimum wage? That's a yes or no. There's lots of states that have had that on the ballot. Florida this month at, at the end of November 3rd is deciding whether to raise their wage to $15 or not, that's a yes or no. But in other moments of history, uh, there might have been the power to put on the agenda, not only the power to raise the minimum wage, but to cap the amount of pay that CEOs get, or to cap the differential between, in companies between the pay ratio between the CEO and the worker, or to actually put on the agenda the idea of re redistribution of wealth. I mean, what is on the agenda, somebody has set the agenda to say our only choice is to raise the minimum wage or not. But there's a deeper level of power to even put on the ballot or to put forward for discussion uh, issues that had not been considered previously. So there's a deeper level of power to actually set the agenda. And then the deepest level of power, even deeper than setting the agenda is to shift the narrative or to control the way we think about an issue, to control the way the populace or the common sense on an issue. Again, that goes to what is the left, what is the right, what is the center, which changes over time. But that ability to, you know, basically transform the way people think about an issue is even deeper, not overt, neither two nor three are overt, clear, obvious ways in which we exert power or people exert power, but they're much more powerful than simply saying yes or no to something. So we can go into a lot more depth on this. I mean, there's a whole book written about it and lots of other articles written about it. But the point is that um, voting is probably the least, least powerful way to engage in a democracy. It's important, it's critical, but it is the least powerful way because by the time you've gotten to voting, somebody has already put on the ballot what you're choosing and somebody has already influenced the narrative. And so that is why it's important to think about beyond, even in an, in an election, it's important to think beyond voting to the other ways in which the people, not just the elites, can set the agenda and shift the narrative. 
because ultimately that will impact who might be, who and what might be on the next election. So that's why we talk about social movements and uh, hopefully you read some of the chapters on social movement theory by Taro for today, but it's important to understand that the basic building block of any social movement is what we call organizing. People use this word organizing so loosely. So, you know, people talk about organizing your closet or I'm organizing a coalition of people or I'm organizing, you know, I don't know. People use organizing in a very, very loose sense. Organizing, community organizing, labor organizing is a profession. It's a skill. It is, you can go to school for many years to be a professional organizer. There are whole universities like the Highlander Center, which I would call an institute of higher learning that are dedicated to organizing. This is a profession that I hope some of you choose to get paid to do. I'm a paid organizer. I'm a professional organizer. This is what I do. And those of us in the field of organizing, we define organizing not in the very loose and broad ways that lots of people talk about it, but in this very specific way. And the top three bullets are something that there's universal agreement on. The fourth bullet has been added in recent years as people have gained more of a racial and gender and social conscious analysis with regard to organizing. So organizing the way professionals or professional organizers define it is collective action. So that's an important, that's, a, that's important in and of itself. It's not any individual signing a petition or lobbying their legislator or voting or doing anything by themselves. It is collective action, intentionally collective, led by the people most affected. So this, you know, is what Tarot calls people with limited means, but we in organizing call it the people most affected. So in any fight, if it's a fight for racial equality, the people most affected are black people and people of color. Uh, if it's a fight for uh, environmental justice, the people most affected are the people in frontline communities, often low-income communities of color that are most impacted by toxins and pollution and other issues, wildfires as I covered in an earlier class. Um, if it's an issue of workers' rights, the people most affected are the workers themselves. Why am I talking about this? Hopefully this is pretty basic. I'm talking about this because quite often we see social change activity that is not led by the people most affected. It's led by people like you and me, people with some privilege, people who, um, people who have some kind of education, people who are not the most affected or the people with the least means. It's people who are, who some might call the vanguard, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, but in organizing, we believe that uh, the, the building block of any social movement and organizing, which is the building block, is collective action led by the people most affected. Then number three, what are those people doing? They are not building a community garden. They are not running a soup kitchen. They are not... Uh, creating a community food garden. All of those things are important. They're beautiful, they're wonderful, but they're not organizing. Organizing is when those people most affected engage in collective action to conduct what is called direct action. 
targeting those with power. Direct action means your body, your physical body, directly confronting or, as Tarot calls it, contending with. He calls it contentious politics. Directly contending with those in power. It doesn't have to be violent. In fact, as you know, uh, a lot of times it is nonviolent. Much of the civil rights movement and, you know, coming from Gandhi, it's nonviolence. But nonviolence is violent, as I think I've talked about in this class, because the whole point of nonviolence is to directly confront those in power, even if you're being nonviolent, and to essentially agitate them into, uh, into, um, into uh, repression in some ways. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, really, the key point of organizing is to directly confront those in power, those who are making the decisions. So direct action is not, again, a petition. It is not an online organizing activity. Rashad would be the first to tell you as much as Color of Change does a lot of online organizing. It's only effective in as much as people don't just engage online. They actually go out in person and do something in a live sense, confronting those in, with power. It's so funny because a lot of times as organizers, we think the best place to go do an action is in a park where there's lots of people or on a busy street where there's lots of people. But if it's not directly confronting those in power, the governor, the mayor, the president, whoever is making the decision, whoever is, has that, that number one power to make the decision, um, then it's not organizing. So organizing is collective action led by the people most affected, engaging in direct action, targeting those with power. In recent years, I would say the last 30, 40 years, we have added this last bullet point as a field of organizers because we have seen the right in many instances use these top three, particularly the Ku Klux Klan. We've actually seen them very actively using the top three bullet points to grow their numbers and to engage people um, or the Tea Party. So we've added this last bullet point to add a recognition that there has to be some kind of racial justice and power analysis when it comes to organizing. Um, and what do we mean by that? The best story I like to tell, and some of those, those who are in my class will remember this, is that some people in the United States call the father of organizing in the US, which I find a little offensive, a man named Saul Alinsky, who wrote books like Rules for Radicals and Reveille for Radicals. They're good books to read just to understand the basic methodology of organizing, how you organize people. But Saul Alinsky came from organizing white immigrants in Chicago. He was organizing Polish and other Eastern European uh, immigrants in Chicago. And there's a famous legend, I don't know if it's a real story or a legend, that he would organize these Polish immigrants in Chicago and say, through organizing, collective action led by the people most affected, which means you, low-income immigrants in, in Chicago, targeting those in power through direct action, we can achieve anything, he said. And he would say to them, what is it that you want to achieve? And the legend is that they said, we want to kick all the black people out of the neighborhood. They are driving down our property values and creating crime and whatever else. And that, if, if we had stopped at one, two, three, then that would have been organizing. It would be collective action led by people most affected, engaging perhaps with their mayor or their whoever's making decisions about redlining and other aspects of not allowing people to live in their neighborhoods but it wouldn't have satisfied this fourth point of winning concrete improvements in people's lives 
and challenging the power structure because at the core of organizing and social movements is not actually winning any one issue. It's changing the balance of power between those most affected with limited means and those who have power over them. That is the fundamental purpose of organizing and social movements. It's not raising the minimum wage. It's not defunding the police. It's not uh, kicking the black people out of the neighborhood. It is challenging the power structure between those who do not have power and those who do. It's, it's, it's balancing the power structure. And so low-income white people trying to kick black people out of the neighborhood doesn't actually change the power structure. It's two, two groups of people with limited means fighting against each other rather than actually challenging those in power. And so that's why I also wouldn't call what the Tea Party did with regard to saying, don't give me health care. I wouldn't call that organizing because it doesn't challenge the power structure. It isn't people with limited means going up against the Koch brothers and uh, saying, you know, we want to challenge the power structure. No, it, the Koch brothers actually helped to fund the Tea Party in, in large part. And so them saying, yes, they, it was collective action led by low-income people, yes, largely, so people most affected, directly targeting President Obama during his administration. So yes, direct action, they would show up and protest at town hall meetings about the health, about ACA, about the healthcare reform, but it wasn't fundamentally challenging the power structure. In fact, what they were fighting for was directly in line with what the power structure wanted, which was to dismantle ACA and not have ACA. So it wasn't, it wasn't changing the balance of power between those with limited power and those with a lot of power. So for us now as a field, widely we have accepted that these are the four bullet points that are the basic elements of organizing and organizing is the basic element of social movements. I wanna distinguish organizing from other forms of social change. It's so important to understand this. I think it's important to take a minute to say why isn't organizing the same as activism or advocacy or services. In the field of organizing, we distinguish organizing from these other forms of social change, all of which are incredibly important by understanding who is the protagonist in these different areas of social change and what is the problem addressed. So services, maybe uh, a lot of us here are engaged in really great service provision, whether it's mentoring and tutoring or a food bank or, um, you know, uh, providing people with legal services or any other kind of support, health services, all of this is critical. There's no condemnation here of that work. But to be clear, that's not organizing. The protagonist in, the, in, the, in services is the service provider themselves. And the problem they're addressing, whether it's hunger or illness or lack of legal services or whatever it might be, that problem they're addressing is a symptom. It's not a root cause, it's a symptom. Being hungry is a symptom of a much deeper problem of poverty and income inequality in the United States. Being ill is a symptom of a much deeper problem of, again, health disparities, income disparities, and so many other issues, housing disparities. So in service provision, we are, we are the protagonist is the service provider and the problem being addressed is a symptom. Then there's advocacy. A lot of people uh, in the policy world, either that go to the Goldman School or come out of Cal, engage in advocacy. They are lawyers, they are lobbyists, they, are, they work in think tanks. They do amazing work, 
They are the protagonists advocating on behalf of lots of other people. And they're, the problem they're addressing is the fact that those people with limited means don't have access to the systems and structures that they have access to. As an advocate, they have access to the legal system. As an advocate, they have access to legislators. As an advocate, they have access to the press. Things that people with limited means don't have access to themselves. And so the work of advocacy is advocating on behalf of those people, whether it's in the form of the law and litigation or lobbying or any other you know, research, any other way in which advocates advocate on behalf of masses of other people, not themselves. Then there's activism. Uh, you know, so much love and respect to activists who are you know, people who engage in contentious activity uh, but on behalf of others. They are, um, you know, the folks who go and, uh, you know, and, you know they, it's Greenpeace. It's people, you know, dropping stuff from bridges and, uh, you know, stopping ships and um, doing amazing direct action work all around the world as activists fighting for others, as people who are, understand that there has to be people who stand up, put their bodies on the line, engage in contentious activity, whether that's protest or even civil disobedience on behalf of others. And there again, the protagonist is the activist. The activist is maybe here in this country fighting for the rights, elevating the, the need for action in other parts of the world. It's activists here fighting for people in Palestine or in you know, Tibet or wherever we might be fighting for people elsewhere, which is absolutely necessary because those people can't come here and do it themselves. But we are activists when we do that. Organizers, distinct from all of that, in organizing, the protagonist is not actually the organizer. It's not me. It's not any professional organizer. The protagonist is the people themselves, the collective of the people most affected. And the problem they're addressing is not any one policy issue or any one problem. Fundamentally, it's the lack, it's the imbalance of power between the elites and those most affected. So any policy fight we engage in is important in and of itself, raising the minimum wage, defunding the police. It it's got its own issue why it's important. But at a deeper level, we do the, we engage in these fights fundamentally to change the balance of power between those in power and those um, who don't have power. And the ultimate goal of organizing is the ultimate goal of social movements, which is widening the spiral of people engaged in the fight so that the amount of power we have as people with limited means grows and grows and grows so that we are constantly able to balance the power between the people in mass and the, and the people in power. So this spiral is um, a, a diagram I was taught uh, by one of my mentors in organizing. She was a leader in the overthrow of the Marcoses in the Philippines. Um, she, she was, you know, I was lucky enough to meet her at Harvard when I was at the Kennedy School of public policy. And um, she had not only been a leader in overthrowing the Marcoses, she then became part of the resistance um, kind of leadership. She'd written several books on organizing and social movements. And she described organizing, uh, at the work of organizing and campaigns and social movements as this widening spiral. Each of these X's is a huge monumental fight against people in power by those who are most affected. So 
if, if I ever succeeded with one of my life's goals, which is to eliminate the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, which is still $2.13 an hour, that would be a huge transformative fight that would end 150 years of a legacy of slavery in the restaurant industry. It would be a big deal, and it would take a lot of work, a lot of my life, but it would actually be just one X on this spiral because each of these policy fights is, yes, critical in and of itself, but through the fight, if we're not widening the number of people engaged in the next fight, then we failed. So every fight for an organizer is both about winning the issue and about growing the number of people engaged in the next fight so that the spiral widens and widens and widens and more and more people are engaged because fundamentally, if we, if our biggest goal is not raising the minimum wage, it's, it's building power for low wage workers who have very little power vis-a-vis -vis their employers. If that's the bigger picture goal, then we have to keep widening the number of people engaged because as organizers, our power comes from numbers. It doesn't come from guns or money. That's what the elites have. What we have as people with limited means is our numbers, the number of people engaged in the fight, the number of people willing to engage in contentious activity. That, num that, that growth of our ability to, to fight because we increase our power with more and more people engaged, we believe happens through each campaign. So the, the campaign I'm in right now to raise the minimum wage and eliminate the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, we are getting more and more and more workers engaged with that fight. Through the fight, we will not only win, we'll have millions of workers who are not engaged in any organizing, now engaged in organizing, willing to take on the next fight, whatever it is, and so on and so forth. And that is why, that is why for an organizer who engages in lifelong organizing like me, those moments where things erupt and there's combustion and an organizing, a, 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 life, a life of organizing combusts into a mass social movement, those are the most spectacular and special moments. Those are the moments we build towards, we prepare for. We're doing the work, fighting for those things every day, raising the minimum wage. Um, there were people, as you know, working on abolition and criminal justice reform long before this year. <laughs> that was daily work many of us did for decades. But when there are moments of, when there are these social movement moments, everything we're doing explodes and becomes much wider, much more widespread. And we see these moments of transformative change. And, and here's, if you hear nothing else I say today, here's the most important thing, nugget to take away, um, that, which I always tell students in the social movement class, this is the one thing, if you don't hear anything else over 17 weeks, know that the more people the more people engaged in contentious action, the more people with limited means engaged with content in contentious action over longer periods of time, over sustained periods of time, the more transformative change you ultimately can win. So if you're engaged in, like I am right now, day, monthly strikes of workers, that's a big deal. It feels like a big lift. It's so hard to do. It's hard to pull off. It's lots of work. It, you know, we, the last strike we had last Wednesday, we may have had a couple hundred workers striking. If we had a million workers striking, we could demand not only an end to the sub-minimum wage, we could, we could demand a $20 wage. We could demand 
so much more than what we are able to win right now, given the amount of power that we have. And especially if we can sustain it over time, the number of people engaged grows and the, the, the kind of change we can fight for is much bigger. So whatever issue it is that you care the most deeply about, whether it's climate change or um, uh, racial justice or economic justice, really whatever issue is your issue, the truth is that you can only do so much with a limited number of people. When there are moments where social movements erupt and millions of people are engaged on an issue, millions of people are engaged in direct action sustained over periods of time, which allows more and more people to get engaged, the more transformative the goal, the policy, the change you can win. That's the most important thing to know. And that has been proven true again and again and again throughout history. Um, I spend time in my social movements and organizing classes teaching people the steps of organizing, how you organize, how you build members and leaders, you build a base, how with that base you develop a campaign and do power analysis, how you then engage, you know, mobilize those people to engage in direct action, because it's not an easy thing to get people with limited means to, you know, go engage in terrifying direct action, to lose their, to, to risk losing their jobs in many cases to risk deportation or incarceration. It's not an easy thing, but there's, there's steps to get there. There's very, again, professional, you know, there's, there people have been doing this work for so long, for generations all over the world. There's real clear things you can learn in terms of how to get people to do these things, how to get, how to organize, how to get people with limited means to develop their leadership, to get others engaged to develop a campaign, to identify those in power, to target those in power through direct action, to win, and then to continue the spiral. Because winning one policy fight is never the end of an organizing, a true organizing fight. A true organizing fight, again, the goal is not just a particular policy, it's to grow the power of the people most impacted. And that requires, by the way, a permanent base of people. This is also what distinguishes organizing from activism or electoral fights. This is not, these are not the kinds of, organizing is not work where you get people engaged around a particular fight, they do their thing, they win, and they move on. Organizing is about building a permanent base of people who are committed to the long haul. And it may not always be the same people. People die, people move on to other things, people retire, people geographically move. But the point is that in organizing, our work is to build a permanent base. And so I would think about it also in the way, you know, sort of like the um, heart monitor in, in, a, in a hospital. There's like the organizing that we do that's sort of hopefully not flatlining, but, but crescendo, you know, growing year after year through this work of building the spiral. But there are these moments, these social movement moments where things explode. And the longer you can stay up here and have that combustion be widespread, the more successful you're going to be. But in the history of the world, we've never seen that level of contention sustained over more than a couple decades. So let's say it's up here at best for a couple decades, it comes down at some point, and then you continue the day-to-day -day organizing work, winning the, raising the minimum wage, fighting the vote for the for reforms and voting rights, you, whatever it is, we continue to fight 
until once again, hopefully at some point, things combust again and you reach this much wider, much wider swath of a society. So what I've been talking about is the daily work. Now let's talk about what is a social movement. A social movement is not the daily work. It is not the you know, everyday work of organizing thousands of workers to raise the minimum wage or the everyday work of, you know, organizing people in a geography to win a bill. A social movement occurs, as Taro said, when people with limited resources are able to sustain contentious actions in conflict with personal, with powerful opponents in a manner that is, we're going to go through all of these, um, based on social networks and connective structures, draws on consensual and action-oriented cultural frames, here's the key, spreads across an entire society over a long enough period of time that there are cycles of contention. So I'm going to go back and talk through each of these, but this is, this is something that's been somewhat controversial in years past. I'm hoping that given that we saw a true social movement you know, earlier this year with Black Lives Matter, that now there's better understanding of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis versus these moments when things really combust. But for years I taught this class and I said to people, you know, when for years I did organizing and I would also use language very loosely and I would say, I'm leading a national social movement of restaurant workers or a national movement of restaurant workers fighting to raise wages and working conditions. And after really delving into the theory about a decade ago, I don't call what I do a movement. I say it's organizing work and we're a social movement organization. We strive towards moments when there are mass social movements, but a social movement is, can't be any one organization. It can't be any one group of people. It can't even be people only affiliated with an organization or an institution. It has to be masses of people totally unaffiliated with any organization, any institution. I, you know, people call it your aunt in Kansas. Not all of us have aunts in Kansas. I have an aunt in, actually I have a cousin in Mississippi. Okay, I, for, my, my, for my purpose, it would be my cousin in Mississippi. If she were to attend a protest, a moment of contentious act or a lot or a series of moments of contentious action, I would know that what I am doing has spread beyond a certain group of people that I'm organizing to a much wider swath of society. So prior to this year, I would teach this class and students would always get upset with me for saying we are not in a social movement moment. We are not in a moment of a true social movement. We are engaged in beautiful, wonderful organizing. It's critical. It's the day-to-day -day work we need to build the spiral, but it is not a social movement. Social movements are palpable in this breath, the breath of contentious action across a nation or a set of nations in the length of time they exist. And so most of what we did prior to this year was critical, but not a social movement. So what I'm trying to say is not that what we do, what I do day to day is not important. It's just that as organizers, we have ambition and we strive towards these moments where a much wider swath of society is engaged because as I said before, if you hear nothing else that I say, it is those moments in which we can achieve the most transformative change. We don't just wait around for social movement moments because they're cool or because it's so fun that everybody's out in the streets. 
we aspire towards social movement moments because those are the moments in which you can go from fighting for $15 for tipped workers to fighting for collective power of 13 million workers to determine not just their wages, but their benefits and their um, time off and, and even how restaurants operate. There's so much more we could fight for if we had the power and the power comes from, from continuing to grow the spiral. And th these moments allow us to not just grow the spiral, but blow up the spiral in, into, much, into much greater action. So let's go through each of these. It's important to understand what we're talking about. We're talking about, again, people with limited resources. This is a social movement, not day-to-day -day organizing, but a social movement occurs when people with limited resources can sustain over time contentious. It's not a one day, it's not the Women's March. Love the Women's March, work really closely with the Women's March. That has been one day actions, not a social movement. Social movements are sustained over a period of time, sustained contentious actions in conflict with targets. So if the Women's March continued its marches over time targeting people in power, that would be a social movement. That has not happened yet. Um, they are based on social networks and connective structures. That means that rather than just being uh, built through organizations like my organization or the NAACP or the Southern Christian Leadership Council or social movements are not one institution. They're not even multiple institutions. They are built through people who connect organically. So through churches, through synagogues, through mosques, through soccer clubs, through PTAs. They are moments in which people identify with contentious action, not just through institutions, not just through formal institutions, but through connective structures that exist in other parts of society and are more organic. My cousin is protesting and I feel moved and identify with her. So I'm going to go out and protest. That's a connective structure. That's not, she doesn't belong to my organization. There's no formal professional relationship. So that's what we mean by social networks and connective structures. It draws on consensual and action-oriented cultural frames. Frames like Black Lives Matter or Occupy or the freedom struggle. Uh, you know, consensual and action-oriented frames help to draw people doing lots of different things in a social movement moment when it's really spread across a wide society, but to come together under a frame or a banner. They're not coming together under one organization. They're not coming together under one institution. They're not all doing the same thing. They don't look alike. They're not coordinated because if it were, I can tell you coordination is the death of a social movement. <laughs> in other words, really trying to very much dictate in these, in these moments when things explode, very much trying to dictate what things look like on the ground. We have seen that kill social movements over and over again. Social movements are much more organic. They explode in very organic ways, but they come together. The level of coordination is that they're coming together under consensual action-oriented frames. And that, that, that work, that work of contentious action under a frame is spread across an entire society, not one geography, not a city. What's happening in Portland alone is not a social movement. Um, you know, nothing can be a social movement unless it's truly spread across a, a, a swath, an entire swath of society 
over enough period of time that there are cycles of contention. What do we mean by cycles of contention? This is one of the most important aspects of a social movement. This is the point that when you engage in contentious action, if there is no response from the people in power, you have lost. There's an important quote by Gandhi. Um, Gandhi said, uh, first they ignore you, right? Um, then, or th then they maybe they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. So if you are being ignored by the people in power, if there's no reaction, uh, you're, not, you're not moving them. You're not actually agitating them. And the goal of a nonviolent organizer is not to not have any violence, it's actually to incite those in power to demonstrate the violence of their beliefs and actions through their repression against people engaged in nonviolent action. So nonviolent action is not not violent. It is actually nonviolent action on the part of the protagonist or the people most affected that is meant to incite violent behavior by those in power to demonstrate the violence of their beliefs, their, their policies, and their systems. So that is why, you know, um, Martin Luther King would say, we're looking for our bull Connor. We're looking for that overreacting person in power who will be easily incited by the people most affected and will come back at us with repression. And what is the point of getting repressed? Why do we as nonviolent organizers want to be repressed? It is because repression by the people in power grows the movement. So what happened with Bull Connor? Martin Luther King wanted to, ins wanted to show the world how violent truly Bull Connor's actions and policies and beliefs and systems and structures were in, in the South. And so what did he do? He had the children come out of public school and engage in a protest, engage in a strike, not go to school. And Bull Connor had what? Dogs and hoses set on these children. And that was televised and that got people engaged. We saw it again in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, it was certain people engaged in protest, but the government's violent reaction to people protesting grew the number of people engaged. We saw it here this year. What happened in Lafayette Square in Washington, DC? There were people protesting, right? President Trump, reacted, you know, overreacted, set the troops on peaceful protesters in Washington, D.C., and that grew the number of people who were angered by the situation, who decided to go out themselves and engage in contentious action. So what we have seen as organizers and, and social movement theorists is that if you are strategic, you can actually incite what Gandhi called jujitsu, moral jujitsu, using the force of the oppressor against themselves, turning it back on themselves by showing the world how repressive they are, inciting them to show the world how repressive they are, and then masses more people getting engaged as a result of that person demonstrating their violence to the world. So cycles of contention are where the people push, that they do it in a way that successfully incites the people in power to counter push, and then there's a larger counter push against the people in power who've repressed and the cycle continues, push, counter push, push, counter push, and the spiral grows, right? So 
if you're not engaged in social movement activity or contentious action over a long enough period of time, you're not going to have enough cycles of contention to really grow the movement to the kind of worldwide movement we saw earlier this spring. And I pray and I hope that we are not done, that it is not done, because typically a social movement doesn't last three or four or five months or six months. It lasts decades. It lasts at least a decade, if not multiple decades. That is how we, we've seen social movements of the past actually achieve the kind of transformative change um, that we've seen happen in, 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 the, in the moments of world history in which we've seen the biggest, most transformative changes. It is periods of time when social movements have been spread across a society over a long enough period of time to achieve that kind of transformative change. And according to Tarot, when we see this kind of sustained contentious action around multiple sovereignties, then you can call it a revolution. Arab Spring is one definition of that, one example of that. Um, but of course, there have been multiple revolutions all over the world where we've seen this kind of sustained contention, not targeted at a policy change, but targeted at a sovereignty over people in power. So I know there's a question. Um, I'm thinking that maybe I should get through the material. So if you could hold on to your questions um, and, and we'll, we'll do our best. Let me check the time. Thank you for that reminder. All right. So um, I found that the best kind of synthesized definition uh, in Tarot's book is here. Collective challenges based on common purposes and social solidarities in sustained interaction with elites, opponents, and authorities. This definition has four empirical properties. Collective challenge with a common purpose, social solidarity, and sustained interaction. Interaction meaning direct action, not meaning, again, petitions and likes on a Facebook page, but direct action, people confronting directly with their bodies. And I keep saying with their bodies, that doesn't mean people are throwing their bodies on the ground or killing themselves. It just means that they're showing up wherever the, the target is and directly face to face, or at least as close as you can get directing the, confronting those in power. So hopefully as you read in the book, the, the thing I like about tarot, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of social movement theorists out there, many decades of people studying what causes these moments of combustion, as I like to call it, or eruption that kind of spread across the society. What, what causes these moments to occur? Uh, what I like about Tarot is that he synthesizes a lot of the previous literature on social movements and talks about them and doesn't actually condemn any of them. He says they're all important and there's an additional component that he adds. So that's why I like to use his book. So he talks about Marx and, and I want to help people understand that here we're not debating, you know, Marx's theories about capitalism, socialism, communism. We're not actually looking at Das Kapital. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a process. What is, what is it that causes workers, in the case of Marx, the, the proletariat, the working class, to rise up against the bourgeoisie? What is it that that causes that moment of revolution or revolt. And according to Marx, all you need is grievances. All you need is the injustice in and of itself that workers face. They are exploited, they're not earning enough. That very fact 
will result in um, will result in revolt. And if they're not constantly engaged in revolt, it's due to false consciousness. They're not completely aware of their exploitation. They are in some way being bamboozled. Remember that third definition of power, the people in power, the bourgeoisie have basically convinced working people that um, they're not being exploited or that they shouldn't revolt for whatever reason. So, but Marx, this is, you know, has been broadened from Marx to a broader field of social movement theorists who call it grievance theory. All it requires for people ultimately to revolt is to be aware of their grievances, to be aware of their exploitation. And there have been many different forms of grievance theory. Um, one that I like to talk about came from the, the French Revolution, analysts of the French Revolution, and it's called the J-curve. It's this idea that if you think about the letter J, I'll just draw the letter J, which may look backwards to you, J. <laughs> right? Um, most of the time, most people in the world are at that lower tip of the J, just slightly above the, the, the bottom, the, the lower line of your paper, right? So most of the time, people have a little bit of something, and so they don't revolt because they don't want to give up their home, their car, their job. They don't want to give up what they have, and so they stay there. But According to the J curve, there are moments when society reaches this bottom point of the J, the very bottom tip of the J, where they have nothing at all. They have nothing to lose. They've lost their home. They've lost their car. They've lost their job. They've lost everything that they own. And those are the moments in which people rise up and go up the other side of the J and they revolt and they win everything. They win the transformative revolutionary change that they've always needed, but didn't fight for because they didn't want to lose that little bit that they had on the other side of the J. So that's the J-curve. It's an example of a grievance theory that all it takes is people getting to a point where they really, their grievances have gotten to the point where they have nothing to lose. And so they revolt. Um, and we talk about grievance theory in kind of this, or all really social movement activity in this kind of spectrum. Fads and rumors, you know, things are starting to percolate. Collective enthusiasms that I would have called prior to uh, George Floyd, I would have called Black Lives Matter a collective enthusiasm, that we were perhaps an emerging social movement, Black Lives Matter, but it wasn't, we, we hadn't yet reached the point of mass protests across uh, all of society or all of the world. And then there are uprising, riots or uprisings, and then if it truly reaches kind of this wide breadth, then you can reach a social movement moment, and then if that is targeted against a sovereignty, it's a revolution. So um this is all grievance theory all kind of emanating from uh you know various theorists including marx who had this idea that all it takes is the existence of a grievance of grievances and exploitation for people to rise up then there was lenin um who came up with this notion of the vanguard right the idea that it doesn't just take grievances it takes a set of elite professional revolutionaries who can form organizations and institutions and can not only help initiate social movements, but sustain them over time. So the broader, again, I'm, I'm hoping people don't get caught up in who Marx is and who Lenin is and what they represent and communism, because that's not actually what we're talking about here. We're talking about the process of what makes people engage in mass social movement or revolt. And according to Lenin, it, it, yes, grievances are critical. You have to have grievances for people to want to revolt, but you also need these elites who can help support and sustain and provide the resources 
for the movement. So this is broadly called resource mobilization. There are lots of different theorists on resource mobilization. Um, and how, you know, part of the question is, can, can elites do it alone? Do they need to have a mass of people behind them? Um, but one of the key kind of questions of resource mobilization is, uh, <laughs> you know, in speaking on behalf of people, rather than the people speaking out for themselves, is it sustainable? Over time, we find with institutions that the need for the institution to survive and sustain itself can be in conflict with the need for a movement to fight against the powers that be. And so in a very practical context, some people call this the nonprofit industrial complex in the United States. And I personally hate those words, but some people call it the idea that if you have a nonprofit social change organization like, like I do, One Fair Wage, that sometimes the need to get funding, to not upset your funders, can be in conflict with the need to also fight elites broadly and generally, um, you know, and not be uh, tethered or restricted in any way by those same elites to push, to bite the hand that feeds you, <laughs> right? So resource mobilization can create a conflict. And I just want to say what Taro is trying to say in going through each of these is these are absolutely necessary components to social movement activity, but not sufficient. With Marx and the grievance theory and grievance theories, Taro says, of course you can't have revolt or social movement without grievances. What, what would be the point of a revolt or social movement without grievances? But if it were true that all it took was grievances, then we should have been in revolt since the beginning of time. We should have been in sustained revolt since the beginning of time because there has been inequality and injustice and grievances forever. And so it must be more than that. It must be that as a necessary but not sufficient con condition. Same with the re with resource mobilization. Taro says, critical to have institutions that can, su can support a movement. I don't know how many of you were conscience during Occupy, um, but a lot of people didn't know that Occupy was heavily supported by unions. I was very involved in Occupy in New York, in New York City. Unions provided all kinds of resources to Occupy from meeting space to staffing to communication support to funding. Um, I mean, every good movement, every social movement has institutions that are definitely supporting it. But if those institutions are it and there's no mass social movement beyond those institutions that's not a social movement and as i said quite often the need to sustain the institutions can be in conflict with the ability to sustain the movement and the ability for the movement to go up against those in power so uh, again here taro said resources are critical for a social movement but not sufficient because if all it took were grievances and resources and institutions, again, there would have been many more moments where we would have seen mass social movements than what we've seen. What we know from history is that those moments of mass activity are rare, they're incredibly unique. And so it must be something more than grievances and resources. And then of course there was Gramsci, that it's not enough to have grievances, not enough to have a vanguard or resources, the people with limited resources, whether they're workers or um, those most affected have to develop their own consciousness. There has to be a collective in intellectual. There must be an identification with working class, you know, working class solidarity, as we've talked about previously um, in this class. 
And so it's so important to engage in framing and collective identity formation. And again, we've seen moments even in recent history like Occupy and Black Lives Matter um, where, where framing works. There is a framing and a collective identity formation that works. Um, but even then, even with really good frames that convince people that, that motivate people and that in a few words or phrases are able to really help people quickly understand what the fight is, who the target is, and what the fight is, um, even when you have those, that's not enough. Occupy is the perfect example of this because you know, many of us who had been around for years talking about income inequality before Occupy, you know, would talk about the fact that the elites own, you know, 1% or 5% of the world's wealth. We would, I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was in graduate school, we would create all these, um, you know, these, these plays basically, or theaters or exercises to show people how so little of the world's population owns so much of the world's wealth. What Occupy did was take a simple phrase, 99%, and help everybody understand years and years of economic theory and statistics and you know all those great plays and things that we used to do. And, and then people on the subway, when I was in New York, people on the subway knew what, people around me, everybody knew what 99% was in a simple word or phrase. And that's what a great frame can do. It can help people quickly understand both the target, the enemy, the purpose, the fight, and inspire people to engage. But according to Tarot, even that's not enough because we have had these great movements like Occupy where we do have grievances, we do have resources, we do have amazing frames, and yet it hasn't been enough to reach the kind of swath of society that we need to reach to really achieve that kind of transformative change that we need. So this is Tarot's edition which I personally found helpful after 20 years of organizing to think about it this way, because ultimately what he is saying is that there are these moments that you really can't plan for, that you really can't like construct. Um, they are somewhat intangible, but they emerge, he says, when political opportunities and constraints change. There are these moments, I like to think about it as like a parting in the clouds. There are these moments when elites are revealed to be more vulnerable or there are new potential allies or, um, you know, something reduces the cost of collective action and increases the benefit of collective action uh, in a way that triggers people to feel very inspired around social networks and collective identities around common themes. So we could spend a whole class talking about what was it about George Floyd after hundreds of years of brutality against black people? What was it against about George Floyd? What was it about that moment that, that exposed the vulnerability in the elites that uh, reduce the cost of collective action that revealed potential allies. What was it about that moment in particular that sparked a much, it wasn't that Black Lives Matter wasn't engaged in amazing organizing work, as I said prior to that. It wasn't even that there wasn't contentious action before that, there was, but obviously not at the scale and breadth as we saw after George Floyd. So what was it in terms of the political and opportunity opportunities and constraints changing in that moment that engaged a much wider swath of people. So we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but what I'd rather think about together is what Tara was saying, which is that you must have grievances, 
you must have resources, you must have collective frames. And on top of that, there are moments of conflagration, as I like to think about it, when a fire turns into uh, an explosion. <laughs> when a, maybe I'm not using the best um, metaphors given what's happened in California right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, what are the moments where things really spread to their widest and then are sustained over long periods of time? That's really what we aim to think about. And, and they're, they're, I mean, we can point to a lot of things, right? We can point to a lot of things about this particular moment, including the intersection between the pandemic, the uh, severe economic depression that people are in right now, the fact that a lot of people are unemployed and feeling angry and frustrated at inequities in the system beyond police brutality and including police brutality. Um, so, you know, there, there are lots of ways in which this moment created a moment of political opportunity and change in constraints. So one constraint, just at a very simple practical level is people were working. A lot of people were working many hours, multiple jobs. I know my population of 13 million restaurant workers, most of them were working two and three jobs. And so asking them to be out in the streets regularly and consistently over many months was very hard. But doing that in this moment, constraints changed. There was less constraint on, ability, on people's time to be able to be out in the streets protesting, at least with my population. That's one thing. But there are many, many things that contributed to things shifting so that what happened this year could allow for the widespread engagement of people in contentious action. And as I said, I hope to God that it lasts because we've already seen some incredible transformative change. But the longer it lasts, the more push and counter push there is, the, the bigger transformative change we can achieve. So what Taro says in terms of the conditions that are necessary for these moments to arise is that there are these shifts in political opportunities and constraints. Um, he says there are these moments when ordinary citizens respond to opportunities that lower the costs of acting collectively, like, you know, you don't, if you don't have a job, the cost of acting collectively, one of the costs that no longer exists is losing your job because you didn't show up to work, right? I'm just being very simplistic. It's just one of many things that have contributed to this year, but it's an example of how the cost of collective action this late spring over the summer was different than it was in previous moments of police brutality um, last year or the year before. These moments reveal potential allies. They show where elites are vulnerable. They trigger these social networks. So Black Lives Matter and defunding the police became a much broad, much more widespread uh, triggering frame for people as a result of it being used much in, in a much more widespread way. Um, but what's also necessary for a social movement to sustain itself is that they use a repertoire of contention. They're not doing the same thing over and over again. Um, they are trying to gain support from a lot of different people who might otherwise not engage in contentious action. And they're doing a really good job of building these frames and identities that are not about telling people what to do or how to engage, but rather what is the ideal we're all fighting for. What is the big picture ideal? Because the moment that any of these institutions says the only way 
everybody across this, the country or the world could use the Black Lives Matter frame is if they got permission from us and they did X, Y, and Z, and it looks like this. Um, I've seen many social movements or attempted or initiating social movements fail because it wasn't about a collective frame. It was about trying to dictate what people were doing. Um, and then lastly, mobilizing structures are essential. As we've talked about, you have to have host settings. You have to have organizations that are willing to support. Um, and even, again, unions did actually support in a big way Black Lives Matter, but so, so did so many racial equity and other organizations. Black Lives Matter itself had become, uh, the movement for Black Lives had become an institution, but it wasn't trying to keep the, the movement with one institution. It was trying to support a wider effort. So there were many institutions supporting this spring and summer. It was not just people organically on their own doing nothing. So in conclusion, social movements emerge when there are these moments where the clouds part, where leaders are engaged or organizers are engaged in a repertoire, lots of different kinds of collective action, ways for people to engage in the cycle of contention. When there are broad cleavages in society between the elites and the people who have recognized their power vis-a-vis -vis the elites and they come together, the people come together around cultural symbols and the collective is able to draw upon social networks and connective structures, not just institutions. They're identifying with each other all going out to protest, not through organizations and institutions and formal networks, but through informal networks, PTAs, parent groups, churches, places where they're meeting with people who they connect with on a social level or a um, familial or relational level, not so much on a political, in a, in a political space. When those institutions, when those connective structures are tapped, that's when you see a much wider swath of society engaging. Um, so coming back to what happens in a social movement, in a social movement, this spiral widens dramatically, right? It widens dramatically. And policy, policy can be a double-edged sword for a social movement because sometimes you win these X's and sometimes they're big. Like at the end, you know, I would say some people would say the end of the Civil Rights Act, a civil rights movement, excuse me, was, or the freedom struggle movement was the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act the following year. There was in some ways a decline of some social movement activity after that. Certainly things continued after that into the 70s, but, but some people would say the Civil Rights Act as it was ended in some ways after that because there was a sense of victory. We won. Maybe the, SWA, the, the wide numbers of people that were engaged felt like we're finished, it's over. Um, and so in that way, policy, winning policy is critical to a people feeling like people feeling their power, people feeling like they can win. People with limited means, if they engage in widespread contentious activity, can win. So winning policy change is essential. It is essential. And it can also be the death knell to a social movement if there isn't this sense that we've won these things and they're only the first step to a, an ongoing fight to maintain them, an ongoing fight to, um, to grow them and to grow more and more people into the movement. And so what did we see with the Voting Rights Act, right? After it passed, we've seen 50 years or 60 years of regression on the Voting Rights Act is practically annulled. It's practic practically doesn't exist because there hasn't been the social movement around it that there was leading up to it. So um, knowing that that is the big picture goal, I wanna 
maybe maybe pause before we get into how you would then use this at a practical level to think about change, uh, policy change or political change at a local level or practical level, and then the tools that all of this kind of tells us for the final project. So I'm gonna take a pause here um, and take questions. Let's go to Franklin McKenzie. Um, hello, well, first, thank you so much for uh, a wonderful lecture. Uh, my question is, um, whether social media and the internet and just more broadly the ability to disseminate pictures and videos and messages more easily in our technologized society has meaningfully changed the strategic calculations for organizers as agitators. I imagine that it'd be easier to present oppressors' demonstrations of violence, but I also imagine that there are new challenges for organizers as well as a result of this. Yeah, it's such a brilliant question, and thank you for asking it. It has absolutely changed, both created new problems and new opportunities, as you just said. And the opportunity is obvious. The ability to reach masses of people and tell people we're all going to be in X place at X time, you know, in, quickly and, and with speed and and to lots of people, it's just, it's just incomparable to what we used to have. <laughs> and I am old enough to remember or trying to organize people without it. Um, it's incomparable that the speed and ability to organize people. Absolutely. The challenge is clicktivism and the idea that somehow it replaces people being out in the streets. Uh, and, and again, before this year, I had lots of students fight me on this and say, no, you know, our generation, we don't go out in the streets. What we do is online. What we do is on social media. And that's good. I'm glad you're online. I'm glad you're connecting with people politically. But what we know from the history of the world is that change doesn't. Let's go back to Frederick Douglass. Power concedes nothing without a demand and a demand cannot come from a Facebook post or a tweet, a, de a collective demand. The only way to truly have a powerful collective demand is for people to be out in the streets demanding it. And this year proved it. People had been talking about criminal justice reform. Defunding the police was laughable before this year. Defunding the police became an actual policy, not because people tweeted it or put it on Facebook, but because they were out in the streets demanding it. That has, in the history of the world, been the only way. There's no substitute for people being out in the streets or targeting those in power directly. So we'll say it is an amazing opportunity if it's seen as a tool to get to direct action. If it's seen as direct action in and of itself, it can be really problematic. And we've seen all kinds of organizations say that they're engaged in social movement activity, not actually truly changing the balance of power through social movement activity. Perhaps they're winning some policy reforms here and there, but to truly to win the kind of power, the change in the balance of power that we need, people have to demonstrate their power. That is actually where the word demonstration comes from. Sometimes we call a protest a demonstration. What's it a demonstration of? It's a demonstration of our power. And the only way to truly demonstrate our power is to be physically present demonstrating our, our collective power. So great opportunity, some challenge. Great question. Uh, let's go to Chloe. 
Uh, yeah, I wanted to thank you for a really engaging lecture. I was a little confused on the entire concept of the vanguard and if a social movement is one of restructuring or challenging power, would a vanguard being the elite be considered a um, an activist or an advocate in that sense since they're not the ones like directly affected by the issue? That's right. I mean, I... I... Um, some people might call me a vanguard, right? I'm a, prof- I'm a professor. I'm a professional organizer. I've, I've built institutions. Um, so vanguard, people have used the word vanguard in really uh, negative and derogatory terms. And, you know, sometimes with very good reason, because there have been efforts where of an elite tries to speak on behalf of others. We've seen that over and over and over again in, you know, men speaking on behalf of women, white people speaking on behalf of black people and people of color. Um, so yes, there have been negative instances of, of people with more privilege and resources speaking on behalf of those or advocating on behalf of those with less privilege or resources. But it can also be seen in another way. If you as an organizer, this is what I see myself doing, are facilitating the people rising up for themselves, organizing and leading their own social movement, then it doesn't have to be entirely negative. So um, in the organization that I lead, uh, there are about 30 staff members, about 25 of them are former restaurant workers, about 15 to 20 of them were members of the organization and now lead the organization as staff. The leaders of the organization are the ones who determine, you know, where we strike, how we strike, whether we strike. Um, So we are able, and then we help these workers, you know, conduct, you know, surveys of each other to uplift their stories and their needs. So I might bring some Uh, resources and ability to help facilitate workers to achieve their own goals. And maybe somebody would call me a vanguard for doing that. But without that, without that support, help, facilitation, uh, it'd be very hard. It's often very hard for workers to do it on their own. So um, just like social media, I think you see vanguard as a tool. You can see people who have resources as a tool. And the real question is, are they the leaders of the movement or are they a tool for the people most affected to lead their own movement? That is the true question. So you can use that word however you want, but yes, advocates can be vanguard, activists can be vanguard, but even organizers, some people could call them a vanguard. Um, and, and, you know, me personally, I don't always see having professional people engage in supporting people leading their own struggle for change as a problem. All right, so let's take one more quick question and then we'll get back to, um, so, uh, Mega? Um, Yeah, okay, firstly, thank you so much, Professor. I thought that was incredibly informative. Um, I just, you spoke a bit about um, funding and how it can sometimes be a double-edged sword because you're, um, especially in a society, like we spoke about neoliberalism the other day, um, you have a lot of very influential people who also uphold very capitalistic structures. So because this is your line of work, how have you navigated that? And how, how much of a challenge is navigating this, this strange funding situation? You guys have the most brilliant questions today. I'm so pleased that uh, 
this stuff didn't go completely over your head. I, I'm, I really appreciate that question. It's so, it's so right on. I feel like it's the issue of our times, which is that um, there are amazing organizations in this field that some critics call the nonprofit industrial complex in the United States. And, you know, in other countries, we call it NGOs. Uh, I would say there's an NGO industrial complex in other countries too. But um, I mean, the Ford Foundation is a great example. The Ford Foundation funds a lot of us. The Ford Foundation is committed to social change, uh, has been on the edge of a lot of social movements, supporting you know social movement activity, um, social change work. It supports my organization. It supports the movement for Black Lives. It supports... Uh, resistance movements in different parts of the world. And it is the Ford Foundation. And there is a board that is somewhat conservative. And um, as much as the staff of the Ford Foundation really support these social movements, they, um, they have restrictions on what you can do with the funding. So the way we've navigated it to answer your question is, if there's a funder who says, I support your work with my money. You can do X, but you can't do Y. You can do research and organizing, but you can't directly lobby and, you know, say I support President Trump, you know, over Vice President Biden. You can't pick a candidate. You can do X, but you can't do Y. But with my money, that's different than a funder who is going to say to you, I'm going to give you a lot of funding and you can't do you can't do you can do x and you can't do y in any aspect of your work or maybe they don't say that overtly but you as an organization feel like you cannot you cannot go up against the powers that be because you have this funder that is that is where that is where so many nonprofit organizations and ngos in a neoliberal world get stuck so for example, I wrote the foreword to a book called Hunger Inc. by a guy named Andy Fisher, which I highly recommend. It documents food banks across the country, food banks or soup kitchens, places that right now are overextended giving out food to people in need. And sadly, a lot of these food banks have received money from Walmart and from large corporations, hedge funds and banks, and that's how they sustain themselves. And as a result, some of these food banks have come out against raising the minimum wage, even though the people they serve food to would be directly benefited if their income went up. They might not need to get free food. So we've seen a lot of food banks come out against things that might uplift people out of poverty because they're funded by corporate elites who don't want to see that happen. So if you, if you are not about minimum wage, that food banks are against raising minimum wage. That's crazy. Why would a food bank be? Go ahead. It's okay. <laughs> yes, they, it is crazy. You're right. <laughs> um, and it's because they're funded by Walmart. So uh, we, we, you know, there are, there are food banks that have been part, there are few food banks that have been a part of social movement activity, but a lot have felt very constrained to do anything that pushes against elites. And, and I will say, in a neoliberal world, the thing that's been most painful to me is to just see this um, fear of contention in general, this idea that we need to 
uh, maybe it comes also from this American notion of the politics of respectability. We don't, we don't, um, we're not crazy. And the people who are out in the streets until this year are crazy. They are, uh, they are engaged in um, uh, unprofessional behavior. They're not, they're not professionals. They are engaged in behavior that's reckless and silly, right? Um, so I, I think that contentious action, just that word has been, uh, is more difficult for nonprofits that accept money from more conservative funders. And the way that we've navigated is to say, we're happy to take, uh, we would never take funding from a tobacco company or the Koch brothers or for people who really engage in direct directly sort of um, things that harm our population. But the Ford Foundation is a foundation that has an endowment. Their money doesn't come from directly from the company. It, it comes from a long time ago. And although they're restricting us with what we can do with their money, they're not in any way restricting us with what we do with other people's money. So that's how we've navigated it. So for the end of the semester, we want you to take what you're going to learn about social movements and organizing and even electoral work from this class and to design a campaign with other students in the class, either to get somebody elected or to pass a policy to basically design a campaign. Uh, and before we talk about what is a campaign and how does a campaign work, um, I wanted to make sure we're all on the same page. Some of this may go back to elementary school. Hopefully you remember from elementary school or junior high or high school that we have three branches of government, or supposedly we do, executive, legislative, and judicial, right? And that there are three levels of government, federal, state, and local. And that there are policies you can, you can move. There's policy change can happen in any one of these boxes. It can happen by getting the president to pass an executive order or getting an administrative agency like the US Department of Labor or the US Department of Justice to pass a rule, agency rule. It can happen by passing a bill in Congress or in a state legislature or in a city council or a county board of supervisors. It can happen at an executive level by a state governor issuing an executive order or by having a state agency in the executive order a column, the executive column, passing a state agency rule. The, the State Department of Labor can pass a rule or, a pro, or move a program. Or it can be a mayor who passes an executive order or gets a city agency to do something. You can move policy in any of these boxes. Again, I, I believe I've talked about this with your class before, but, but in the judicial com column, people might say, particularly lawyers who believe you know, that our system is unbiased, that you as we as people cannot move policy in the judicial front. Um, but the truth is, we know that people power has moved court decisions at the Supreme Court level or in the federal appeals courts, or in the highest court of at the state level or in a local court system. So um, typically, when I've done this same project as a final project in the past people don't do not choose this last column because it's harder to imagine a campaign to get the supreme court to do something or the state to do something but it has happened and it is happening you know it has happened over time typically in choosing a campaign to take on uh 
people choose. I'm, my goal with this project is to move a climate change bill in the state of Oregon. It passed in California, and now I'm trying to get it passed in, Cal in, in Oregon. Or um, trying to get the mayor of um, San Diego to pass an executive order uh, ensuring that the police aren't going to go after immigrants. I mean, that's, a, that's old, but just as an example, you know, you can pick any of these levels of government. Typically, you're going to pick the first column or the second column, um, and, and you can decide where you want to move policy. In this class, being Elections 2020, we're also offering you the chance to think about running a candidate. Um, so, with policy, we want you to choose a policy that somebody has tried somewhere. We do not want you to make up a bill. Somebody has introduced this bill somewhere, and either you're trying it somewhere else, or because it failed where it was introduced, you're trying it again in that same place. But you could also run somebody for office. If you want, your group could run you for office. Uh, if you want, it could be a community leader that you're running for office, or it could be somebody who's run for office and failed that you're trying to run somewhere else. What it cannot be is somebody running right now and all you're doing is documenting what they've done so far and saying what they need to do to win. It cannot be something that's on the ballot for November. It cannot be Prop 15 in California. That is already on the ballot. There's already a campaign. You cannot do that. It has to be something that is not currently running a person or a policy and you're running it somewhere. Um, so what's a campaign? A campaign is a plan to win a specific change, a policy or a practice or a person, right? Um, and it's an arc of activities and tactics designed to get your organization from point A to point B. And it's grounded in a power analysis that I am not going to have time to walk through in its entirety. But just know that we think in organizing about campaigns in stepping stones. We think about small current fights that then lead to larger, bigger fights that then lead to milestone reforms towards our long-term agenda. So as an example, um, our current fight in uh, One Fair Wage is to get Governor Cuomo to enact a full minimum wage of $15 for tipped workers in New York State. That's a current fight. That could lead to more states. That's the stepping stone fights. It could lead to more states actually um, you know, passing one fair wage. And that ultimately could lead to our milestone reform of getting the U.S. Congress, the Senate and the House to pass a full minimum wage for tipped workers. But all of that are steps towards our big long-term agenda of actually winning structural reform, winning power for workers vis-a-vis -vis their employers. So we want you to, you see these numbers at the bottom, you start by thinking about, okay, I'm going to run, our, my group got together, we're going to design a campaign to run me for office. What, then you go to number two, what's our long-term agenda that we're trying to succeed, you know, to achieve? So then what would be a milestone reform towards that agenda? And what would be a stepping stone fight towards that? That helps you think about how to design your current campaign in a way that builds towards the stepping stone and milestone reform. Hopefully I'm not talking too fast. Okay, I have five minutes left and I'm going to introduce this tool, which is complicated. And then uh, we will have to get into more depth next time. So there is a group in LA called Scope Agenda. It is a group that has fought for many years, uh, you know, to organize mostly people of color, 
in South LA um, to fight against the powers that be and win all kinds of amazing campaigns, jobs, um, economic uplift, housing issues, all kinds of things. It was founded by a man named Anthony Thigpen, who was a Black Panther, and then went on to found many organizations, including Scope Agenda. While he was at Scope Agenda, he designed this power analysis that so many of us in the organizing world use. And this power map has two axes. You'll see the y-axis, the vertical axis, and the x-axis, the horizontal axis. The y-axis or vertical axis measures the amount of power that you have. And here we're looking mainly at that first level or dimension of power, the, the ability to make the decision. If you are 10, you are the decision maker. You are actually the Govern, your Governor Cuomo making the decision on whether to enact one fair wage, a full minimum wage with tips on top. If you are us, little one fair wage organization, we're at a two, we're probably at a three or four at this point. We can get attention, we can be taken into account, but we don't at this moment have the power to get Governor Cuomo to do what we need him to do. So we're not at six, but the Restaurant Association, on the other hand, they have enormous power. Governor Cuomo's number two right-hand woman, her father is the lobbyist for the Restaurant Association. So they have enormous influence over Governor Cuomo. They are number eight active participants in decision-making. So we are way down at the bottom, three or four. They are way at the top, and that's part of the problem. We, we use this power map to understand where are we at the beginning of a campaign to then design our campaign. On the, on the horizontal axis, the x-axis, you're looking at how much are they support, are, are institutions and power players, opponents and allies supportive of our campaign or hard against us, right? And in the middle is, is neutral. That line is zero. We are die hard for our own issue. We as Little One Fair Wage are die hard for our own issue. We can get some attention. So we're going to be on the left-hand side all the way at die hard and between three and four on the y-axis. We have organizations we work with like SEIU, they support us, but this is not their priority number one issue. So they may be a number two active support, but they have more power. They probably are a six. So we are three on the x-axis and three or four on the y-axis. They might be two on the x-axis and six on the y-axis. Am I making sense? Okay. That is how you map yourself and your allies, but then you also have to map your opponents. Who are your opponents? In our case, it's the Restaurant Association. They're gonna be diehard against us, so way on the right, but farther up, they are active participants in decision-making. Then there are probably institutions in between. There is, let's say in New York, um, oh, the ACLU right now. They are inclined towards us and they have more power than us, um, but they're not doing anything active to support us. They're not actively supporting us. So maybe they're a one. And then there's the Chamber of Commerce. They're not die hard against us, but they're not inclined against us. They're at negative one and they have more power than us. Maybe they're a six. So you're going to map both your allies and your opponents on this map. If we had all the power uh, and we are all die hard for us, we would win our social justice agenda. That's the top left. So winning a full minimum wage for tipped workers would be in that green box. If they had all the power, which they do currently have most of the power, 
their agenda, which is largely the status quo, would, would predominate. So, so we start by naming the competing agendas, mapping allies and opponents. And this next slide is gonna look extremely confusing, so take a breath. <laughs> um, so really what we're asking you to do is forget step one, forget step three, start by sketching the competing agendas. That's step two. Step four, you want to sketch the major decision makers. In my case, it's the governor, maybe the head of the Senate, the head of the assembly. Who are the major decision makers? If you're running a candidate for office, the decision maker is simply the people. That is just, that's easy, right? Um, you don't need to worry about that. But even if you're running a candidate, you need to think about who are your key allies. That's the green boxes. Who's your major opposition? Those are the pink boxes. And who are unorganized groups of people that could be brought over to your side? So these could be parents, they could be students, they could be unorganized people who are not institutions. Institutions are in squares that could be brought over to your side. So I realize we're out of time. I realize that we went too fast through that. Um, we'll spend a little bit more time on it next time and, and in upcoming classes. But the point of all of this, just to close out today, is that we run campaigns to move policies, to move towards social movement agendas, but ultimately it comes down to power. We are trying to win power, not just that first level of power, Stephen Luke's power, we're trying to win the power to set the agenda and the power to influence the way people think. Ultimately, whether, you know, beyond just winning in November election, if people care about change in this world. It cannot be about just one candidate versus another. It has to be about thinking about how do we organize and engage around greater power for people for more transformative change over time. So I am uh, gonna stop. I, I, yes, I will post at least the power mapping slides to B courses so that you will uh, have them. Talk more on Wednesday. Thanks, everybody.